0: Amen. You may be seated. And I want to add my welcome. I'm hoping that several people have already encountered you and engaged you and said good morning and welcome to worship. My name is Eric Barton, and I get to pastor here at the downtown campus of Bethel Bible Church. And we're delighted that you're here. And as Mike has already said, we don't think it's an accident that you're here. We are gathered together as the people of God, the body of Christ, the fellowship of the Spirit to do church. This morning is a little bit of a unique and uh, unfortunately uh, a sad start. Uh, We are partnering with, uh, that I know of anyway, about 34 other churches here in the Tyler area and in East Texas to pray for uh, a family and to pray for a church and a community. Some of you may or may not be aware of this, but earlier this week, a senior pastor of a local church, Sylvania Church, here in town took his own life. Uh, left behind a wife and three sons and it just sent off shockwaves in our community, in our churches, certainly in that family. And so a lot of us pastors began having conversations and uh, as tragic as it is, and it is, um, agreed that this is an opportunity for us as a church to, to not hide behind any stigma, to not hide behind any potential awkwardness. But to speak to, this is a horrible, hard, hard thing. And so to pray for the people of that church, to pray for that family, to pray for how God will use this and to redemptively recreate out of this horrible deal. Uh, we ran into some of the folks from Sylvania Church last night at dinner. And man, just to, to see them being together. And they were talking about all this past week, how they would come together in small groups at counseling facilities. And they would just have group therapy conversation and time together they would laugh and cry and cry and get mad and laugh and cry some more and just processing through all the cycles so I asked him how's it going to be today he said you know what it's gonna be a great day it's the first day we're starting it's a beginning and so I'm just so thankful for uh, the leadership that poured into that church how the leadership of the churches of this community have put aside whatever differences may exist. Some are more significant and need to be addressed later on, perhaps. But right now, man, we just love those people. And so we're, our hearts, our, our prayer goes out to um, the family of this man and, um, and the folks in that church and the leadership that has to continue to move forward. So I'm going to invite you to pray with me. And I say that a lot, but I don't mean just to hear the words that I'm saying and to sort of mildly agree or disagree. When I say I want us to pray together, what I mean is, in your mind, I want you to imagine what is true. Not to to create it as though it's not true, but no, imagine what is true, which is you and I, in a very real sense, in the spirit realm, we approach the throne of God's grace with confidence. We walk right in, we say, Father, this hurts. And we make intercessory prayer on behalf of these people who are struggling and hurting. And that's what we get to do. As the church. So, would you bow your heads with me and let's pray? Well, Father, here we are speaking audible words in this room that by grace are heard in your throne room. You are the God of all comfort. And even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with us. We know that you were with Amanda and those boys. We know that you were with that church. We know you were with this community. And so, Father, we want to speak directly to it. This is hard, and this hurts, and this is sad, and it's going to leave a generational impact. And yet you are good. We know, Father, that from your word, you told us that precious is the death of the saints. And so we thank you for Philip Dancy, For his life, his ministry, his pastoring of uh, the people to which you entrusted him, for his giving of the gospel, and that though he stepped away from his post, uh, that the gospel would continue to sound forth, perhaps uh, with even greater veracity and intensity. Father, we we know that there is sadness, grief, there is frustration, uncertainty, doubt, uh, all sorts of emotions. But Father, would you continue to keep our eyes on Jesus? I thank you for this community, these churches, the leadership of Sylvania. I pray for wisdom in the days, weeks, and months upcoming, that they would, in a very real sense, know your presence, know your peace. God, we know that you are also grieved by this. And so would that family continue to feel your presence? God, thank you that we do grieve, but we do not grieve as those without hope. And that our grief is an expression of love. And so would you equip the leadership of that church and these churches in this community to repeat the refrain of things that are true and to eliminate things that are not true? God, I don't want to imagine what we would do In a situation like this, apart from your love, from the finished work and the word of your son Jesus and the movement of your spirit and the provision of your people. So may we rise up for your name's sake and for the good of your people. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for letting us do that. I I asked my buddy that I encountered last night, so what happens tomorrow? And he said, we're going to have church. And he said, and you guys had better have church too. I said, that we can do. So we're going to have church. We're going to continue to worship our God. We're going to declare his excellencies by walking through Holy Scripture together. So if you've got your Bibles, I want to encourage you and invite you to turn to the little letter of 2 Thessalonians. It's our second week in the book of 2 Thessalonians. If it's hard to find, here's my tip. Find Hebrews, go left. You'll be there in no time. Hebrews has got 13 chapters, you can find that thing, but just find Hebrews, go left, you'll be in 2 Thessalonians. What I want to talk about this morning as we go through the remainder of the first chapter of Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians is this idea, this notion, this concept of perspective. Now, perspective is one of those words that can mean something, nothing, everything, or whatever. But really and truly, as you read through your Bible, and I hope that you read through your Bible, one of the things you'll notice is the concept of perspective is really a synonym for wisdom. The Perspective and how you see things, how you discern things, how you come to actually recognize things is is applicationally or practically, it's what wisdom is. It doesn't happen very often, but sometimes a secular resource book like the dictionary will actually preach my sermon for me. It's kind of nice, kind of like a free Sunday, not really, but kind of. Here's a definition from the World English Dictionary um, perspective. Two definitions. First one goes like this. A way of regarding situations, facts, etc., and judging their relative importance, making a discerning judgment about the importance of the thing that you observe. Definition number two. The proper or accurate point of view or the ability to see the accurate point of view. It's called Objectivity, being able to see a thing, make a discerning judgment about it, and have the proper point of view. Let me give you some illustrations. There's an old story that goes about 70, 80 years ago, there was a a, a growing shoe company here in the United States, and they wanted to expand their markets internationally. And so the sales manager, the VP of sales for this shoe company, decides, hey, we're going to send in our two best. Our crack sales guys, we're going to send them into sub-Saharan Africa, into the Congo Basin. We're going to send our two guys with all the inventory we can muster. We're sending them over on a boat, and we're going to help them to get in country, and they're going to sell shoes in these new markets in Congo. Well, it doesn't take long. The first sales guy sends back a telegram. You can tell how long this has been. He sends home a telegram that says, basically, zero prospects coming home. Nobody here wears shoes. But the second guy, he sent another telegram, and it said, send more inventory. Opportunity of a lifetime. Everyone's barefoot. (laughs) Two different people saw the same exact environment and had two different perspectives. Isn't that interesting? Or another one from the more recent age of football. Some of you older folks might remember a Tampa Bay Buccaneers football coach named John McKay. John was the coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers when they were still the Orange Sherbet Dreamsicle team. Uh, He he was asked one time, what do you think about your team's execution? And he said, I'm all for it. (laughs) Right. Before he coached in the professional league, he was a coach for USC, Southern California, and they played Notre Dame, and Notre Dame beat them 51 to zero. Absolutely walloped them. And McKay tells a story that he walked into the locker room and he sees all these guys utterly and completely dejected, like they just lost everything, and he stood up on a rickety bench in the middle of the locker room and he said, hey, there are 1.2 billion people in China and not a one of them knows that this game was even played. (laughs) That's a proper perspective, you see? Perspective is the way we see things, and by see, I mean how we detect and come to understand. Well... Listen, proper perspective is a synonym for wisdom. As you read through your Bible, perhaps over the next year, every time you see that word wisdom, maybe just swap it out for perspective and see if that helps you to really kind of understand what Scripture is trying to get us to do. Scripture is telling us about proper perspective, wisdom. It's almost on every single page and that wisdom is to be sought above all other treasures because it is eternal. And that's amazing because we are a finite species. And yet... We're still invited, in fact, directed to have proper perspective, which is this eternal mindset and soul set. How do we do that? Well, wisdom or proper perspective is seeing the world through God's eyes. What would God see if God was looking at the world? Well, he is. Wouldn't it be nice to see what he saw? Well, we can. Since that's true, what is God's vantage point? For that, of course, we have to engage the Spirit of God, the Word of God, be the people of God. And so we go to God's Word. Let me come at this from a slightly different supportive angle. We're in 2 Thessalonians because we've already finished 1 Thessalonians. That's in the Greek province of Macedonia, a Roman province they conquered Greece, and the northern part was called Macedonia. Thessalonica is in Macedonia. A little further away was another church that Paul plants in Macedonia, in Philippi. And so this is a, a, a corresponding, corroborating perspective that Paul's going to give. This is the world from God's vantage point. This is from Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. This is what he says. But our citizenship is in heaven. Right away, I want you to understand what he's doing. He's adjusting, fine-tuning their perspective. The people of Philippi and Thessalonica were all excited and proud of themselves because their passports were red. We were Roman citizens. This is our identity. This is why we matter. This is why we have meaning, value, significance, weight, and worth. Paul says, no. Proper perspective is your citizenship is in heaven. Your passport is actually white and gold. And your passport is not blue. It's white and gold. That's the proper perspective. And from it, heaven... We await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. That's God's vantage point. By the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. How much power will Jesus muster to transform you and me into His likeness? The same level of power that He used to create the cosmos. That's all. And for some of us, He's going to have to lift with His legs. All right? It's going to be a bigger job. (laughs) And that's what he's going to do. That's God's perspective. That's what he's about. He's looking at you and me, not... (sighs) But as someone that was created in his image, that he is actively, presently involved and engaged at transforming them into the image of his risen Lord Jesus' Son. Now, that's God's perspective. Ooh, Since that's true, and since that's truth, we should adopt that same sort of vantage point, that same sort of perspective. So that's what our text is gonna do for us this morning, to give us proper perspective. And so our big idea for the morning from this passage, goes like this. Proper perspective is kingdom consciousness. Proper perspective is kingdom consciousness. Being aware that the kingdom of God exists in the world, but not as we expected. And we're actually from that kingdom being fitted, you might say, to be more suitable for that kingdom in the present age. Now, we are in 2 Thessalonians. Super quick reminder and a run-up. This is during the Apostle Paul's second missionary journey. We read about this in Acts 16, 17, and 18. He's taking his second missionary journey. He was in modern-day Turkey. He was trying to do more ministry in Turkey. God says, no, I want you to go internationally. So Paul crosses the water. He goes to Philippi in Macedonia. He gets beaten up. He leaves there. He goes to Thessalonica. He's there for about three and a half weeks, ministering there, telling them from the scriptures who Jesus is, that he's actually Messiah, that he's actually divine. He gets run out of town. He goes to Berea. But the Thessalonians, they travel. They find him there, and they... They rush him out of Berea as well. So he goes to Athens and finally makes his way down to Corinth. He's in Corinth for 18 months. We read about that in Acts 18. He's so nervous about the Thessalonians that he sends his protege Timothy back to Thessalonica to see how they're doing. He comes back. He gives a report. He's so excited. He writes 1 Thessalonians. But after about four or five months, another anonymous reporter comes and says, Hey, Paul, things have kind of gotten squirrely. They've got more questions. And so Paul writes 2 Thessalonians, probably only four or five months after 1 Thessalonians. So it's probably about February of A.D. 52, right? It's his third letter. Galatians is first, and then 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. Last week, we talked about the first four verses of chapter 1. What is a healthy church? It's full of converts. It's got people who are doing the labor of love, who are growing in faith, who are persevering in hope. But they're experiencing persecution and affliction. And Paul says, let me explain what's going on there. Because they didn't know. Brand new church had not been discipled, but for maybe three and a half weeks. And so Paul writes to give them a proper perspective, to instill a kingdom consciousness. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. Paul says, this is evidence. This, what is the this referring to? Look only a little bit higher up. It's the end of verse 4. This, that they are in fact having persecutions and afflictions. They're going, why are we suffering? We believe the gospel. Jesus sounds awesome. We love him, though we've never met him. We are citizens of a place we've never been to. So why are we suffering? Why are we being opposed? Why is there resistance? Why is there opposition? Paul says, oh, oh, let me explain. And this is good for us to really listen to. This is evidence. Endigma is the Greek term. It's where we get a word for indication or indicative or indicator. This suffering and persecution that you're going through is an indicator of the righteous judgment of God. Say, what now? This is oftentimes when Christians in the 21st century will read a New Testament epistle and go, that doesn't seem to click, doesn't make sense. Moving on, I liked John 3.16 a whole lot better. That part I understood. Here's the thing. Our English translations are really, really good, and they are correct, but sometimes ever so slightly incomplete. When Paul says, they are evidence of God's righteous judgment. It's not the same word for judgment that we usually see. There's just not an English word for judgment that is used here. This is Crisis in Greek. The normal word for judgment is krima. Krima is when God judges sin. It's what happened to Jesus on the cross. Crema is what happens when Christ returns to judge sin. This is not that. This is chrisis. This is a, a better word might be discipline or chastisement or Behavioral correction. Do you understand? It's it's not a condemnation. Very important. Romans 8:1. There is now therefore no condemnation, crema, for those who are in Christ Jesus, because he received all the crema already. This is Croesus. What Paul's saying is this suffering and persecution that you're receiving is an indication that God loves you. Wait, what? That's not what I want to hear. I thought I was suffering because because God's not paying attention. Wrong. I thought I was suffering because uh, maybe God's mad at me. Impossible. I thought I was suffering because, it, no, it's because he is doing a thing in you, through you, with you, for you. L- let me explain what Paul's going to say, and it has said is, God loves you too much to leave you the way you were when you became a believer, God, you might say, we studied through the book of Genesis, we were looking at the life of Jacob. God is the enemy of your old self. And praise God, he doesn't leave you as you were. He's always in the business of polishing, refining, polishing, refining, taking you through into that space where you are being transformed until such time as you are transformed. So Paul continues. Verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy. Your suffering doesn't earn you any worthiness. It demonstrates your worthiness. God says, this one is mine. And so I'm going to allow these hard things to come into her or his life. I'm going to use them to refine and polish because I am making them worthy. Suffering does not make us worthy. It demonstrates that God says we're worthy by grace. Now that's an amazing thing that we have to, We have to fine-tune our focus and have proper perspective. He says that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. This is the sovereignty of our God. Sometimes we have to do some theology so that we can understand our personal anthropology. It's helpful to understand things about God so that I can understand what's happening with me. God is sovereign, and He uses the bad choices of billions of people to accomplish his purpose perfectly and precisely on time. Now, that's sovereignty. I can make a good choice and have everything fall apart because I'm not sovereign, not even close. God accomplishes his purpose perfectly and precisely on time through, not in spite of, through the bad choices of billions of people. Now, that's incredible. In other words, God says, there are a lot of things that are working against the world, your own flesh and sin nature, the enemy, the enemy, I'm going to superintend all of those schemes for my purpose and for your good. Now, we have to understand that and know that in advance, or when things come that are hard and that hurt, we'll get wrecked and we'll get dashed on the rocks. Way back in the Old Testament, there's a minor prophet called Habakkuk. And Habakkuk is standing on the wall, literally watching Jerusalem descend and decay into debauchery and depravity. And he prays, God, do you not see this? Are you not going to do something? We are your covenant people. Look how we're behaving. Oh, God, won't you do something? Habakkuk says, oh, happy, happy, happy. I got this. In fact, I am raising up the Babylonians. They're going to come, and they're going to wipe you out, and they're going to judge you. Habakkuk says, whoa, whoa, that's not what I was talking about. I just needed like a shot back in a broom. Like, we, we don't need all that. God says, no, 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 no. I am going to raise them up. They're going to judge you. And then I will judge the Babylonians for their evil. Isn't that interesting? And so Paul's going to speak about that very same thing right here. Chapter 1, verse 5. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Listen, suffering is real opposition, resistance is real, but it's up to us to be equipped with God's word so that we see it the right way, that we have proper perspective. Leon Morris, one of my favorite authors, he puts it this way. The very troubles and afflictions which the world heaps on the believer become under God the means of making him what he ought to be. Suffering, when we've come to regard it in this light, is not to be thought of as evidence that God has forsaken us, (laughs) but as evidence that God is with us. Now, that takes an enormous amount of wisdom and perspective to view our lives and the lives of those around us that we love like that. I'm really going through this season of of hard, of hurt, of, of frustration, of fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and for you and I to not try to rescue them too quickly, but to recognize, my God, my God, He loves you. What is he doing? He loves you too much to leave that chunk of your old self attached. And sometimes he'll use a chisel. Sometimes he'll use a torch. Sometimes he'll use your spouse. Sometimes he'll use your kids. Sometimes he'll use your job. Sometimes he'll use whatever. He loves you too much to leave you as you were. He's in the process of redemptively recreating. And so Paul says, listen, I know it's happening, but it's not your job to try to get comeuppance. It's not your job to seek Romans or to seek vengeance he says that in Romans as well since indeed god considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you there is an errant human assumption called karma that whatever just goes around just comes around it seems to make sense to a human mind the problem is that it's wrong and if you believe in that then you w- what are you going to do with all of the untold millions of acts of wickedness and wrong that are never actually recompensed. But what's better, because it's true, is that God is sovereign, and he is aware of every single deed, not only that, but every single motive behind every single deed. And so Paul says, those troublers will be repaid with their own trouble, not because of karma, but because God is a good, good Father. Now then, verse 7 and 8. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Well, here's the center of our passage. This is a proper perspective. Here's the statement It is perhaps one of the most central statements in all of human history. It goes like this. Jesus is coming back. That climactic truth literally changes literally everything, at least if we're to have proper perspective. Jesus is coming back. Now, I, I don't know what you think about the people in your sphere of influence. I hope you believe that that's true, that Jesus is coming back. I hope you assume and believe that Jesus is alive the majority of the world's population does not believe that Jesus is alive. It's important for us to be reminded of that as we encounter things on social media or on broadcast media. Most of the world operates under an assumption that Jesus is not alive. But what's tragic is when a Christian operates with that default base assumption. But he is, and he's coming back, and that changes absolutely everything. Christ is currently at the right hand of God. We know that he intercedes on our behalf as a high priest. We get that from the book of Hebrews. He is exalted and he has the name that is above every name. He is the head of the church and he's currently what we would call hidden. Most of the world doesn't know him, doesn't believe that he's alive. We love him even though we've not actually seen him, but he will be revealed. This is chapter 1, verse 7, very importantly here. All through Paul's epistles, he will use two different words to talk about the coming of Christ. The first word he uses is the Greek term parousia. Parousia, every single time, always, and every, every occasion, has to do with Christ coming to his own people. Titus will call it the blessed hope. James will talk about it. 2 Peter talks about it. 1 John talks about it. First, and Second Corinthians talks about it. Every single chapter of 1 Thessalonians talks about the parousia, the coming of Christ to his own. And it's a wonderful, blessed moment. He's partially hidden from us, even though we know him and we love him. We know him through his Holy Spirit, who's always pointing us to Jesus. We know him through the Old Testament prophets and the stories that are pointing us towards Jesus. We know him through the gospel accounts, where we see the life and the ministry of Jesus played out. We know him through the explanation of the epistles. We know him through his working in the church in the present age. We even know him through the anticipation in the book of Revelation. For those of us who believe, who he claimed to be, it is a a coming, it is an arrival, a long, eagerly anticipated parousia, a coming to his own. But for unbelievers, is what we see here in verse 7, it's a different word. It's not parousia. It is an unveiling. The Greek term is apocalypsis, we get our word for, apocalypse, an unveiling of which is hidden. The one who has been hidden will be made fully public. The book of Revelation is the word of God unveiled to talk about Jesus. His second coming is the living word of God made fully alive, unveiled. And look, let me just say, there will be absolutely no doubt whatsoever. The first time Christ came, it was very veiled. His birth was heralded on a shepherd's field by a bunch of angels, and some shepherds saw it, and some magi from the east saw it. But globally, not a lot of other folks took notice. If you would have walked into that manger scene, he would have looked like any other baby. If you would have walked into his father's carpentry shop, he would have looked like any other teenager hitting his thumb with a hammer, but maybe not. I don't know. Maybe he didn't. He would have looked like any other Galilean walking on a dusty street. If you would have seen him on the cross, he would have looked like any other man shamed beaten, bloodied, dying on a cross. But the next time he comes, there will be no Bethlehem, no meager circumstances. There will be no manger. There will be no humble village life, no poverty, no walking around, no demons nipping at his heels, no men harassing him, no cross, no humility. No, there will be blazing Shekinah glory. Quick sidebar. Anytime you hear some report of some guy claims to be Messiah, It's a joke, Uh, and a really bad one at that. You can dismiss it in about two nanoseconds, because the coming of Christ, again, will be a global event instantaneously. It's April, which means it's the 30-year anniversary of the Branch Davidian compound fiasco outside of Waco, Texas. I promise when Christ returns, he will not put up chain-link fence in Waco. There's a guy in Puerto Rico. He's enormous. He claims to be the Messiah. No, no, he's not because he's he's stuck in Puerto Rico. It's not him. It will be a global event, absolutely non-mistakable, globally. How is it possible that someone will recognize him in East Texas and in sub-Saharan Africa and in the subcontinent of India all simultaneously? I don't know. I guess Jesus has Twitter. I have no idea. I don't care. We just know it's a global event instantaneously. will not be. We have to, where we have to wonder. The Apocalypse described is described with three very critical prepositional phrases. Those who are unbelievers. He says, those, um, he'll be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. We've we, we got to talk about that just a little bit, not to nerd out and word out, but when Paul's doing this, remember this is Saul of Tarsus, Jew of Jews, Pharisee of Pharisees, tutored under Gamaliel, But he's writing to a Gentile church that is also comprised of a lot of Jewish people. We know that he went to the synagogue in Acts 17 in Thessalonica. So there were some Jewish people. So what's Paul doing? He's trying to equip his Gentile audience, but also explain to the Jewish people and the congregants of that church who this Jesus is. It's what he had done in Acts 17. He says, he will come from heaven. The first time, yes, he came from heaven too, but nobody saw that. It looked like any other childbirth. He didn't actually have a halo of light around his head although that would have been cool. Didn't happen. It looked like any other childbirth. This time we will see globally the transition between heaven and earth. The Gospel of Matthew talks about this. Matthew 24, verse 30. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. An unmistakable global event. Secondly, it says, he will come with his mighty angels. Eh, eh, eh. Bad translation. He will come with the angels of his might. Make no mistake, angels are mighty, powerful beings, but they derive all of their power and glory and might from him. And by the way, so do you, and so do I. It's not our own. He will come with the angels of his power, Power. Why is Paul telling us this? Why does this matter to us? Because Paul's trying to make sure we understand that this Jesus is God. He's not a great rabbi, not a swell teacher, not a pathetic martyr, not even a superhero. He is God. Every time you see God make any kind of appearance in the Old Testament, he is always accompanied by angels. So Paul's telling his Jewish hearers in Thessalonica this Messiah that we crucified, he is God. In Exodus 19, Moses receives the law. It is mediated by the angels. They are somehow present, involved in that whole process. Psalm 68 says, The chariots of God are tens of thousands and thousands of thousands. The Lord has come from Sinai to his sanctuary. Why does it say tens of thousands? Because they don't have a Hebrew word for gajabillions. There is innumerable. God's always demonstrating his power by his company of mighty ones. Matthew 24, 31 says, And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds and from one end of the heavens to the other. Here's the point. God appears in the Old Testament with angels. He appears next time with them as well. This Jesus is very God of very God, and he's coming back into our context. It will be a global, astonishing, glorious, grand event. And Paul says he's coming from heaven with the angels of his power in flaming fire. Again, all through the Old Testament, God is depicted as in fire. His presence is frequently described as a burning fire. Psalm 104. He makes winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. And fire, of course, is meant to demonstrate judgment, the all-consuming. But it is his presence himself. This is what Paul was trying to explain in the synagogue in Acts 17. Paul here is referring almost certainly to Isaiah 66, which the Jews of Thessalonica would have been very familiar with. Isaiah 66, verse 15 says, For behold, the Lord will come in fire and His chariots like the whirlwind to render His anger and fury and His rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by His sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Paul saying that one that we'd heard about in the Old Testament, yeah, it's Jesus. It's actually Him. Well, That unveiling. For those of us who are believers, His coming is parousia, a blessed hope. For those who are unbelievers, well, who are those people? verse 8, those who do not know God, who perhaps believe or claim that they know God because of their religiosity, because of their affiliation with some organization, who knows? And on those, and there's this language of an increasingly deeper, darker level of destruction and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. There are those who do not know God. There are those who refuse to obey the gospel. That might be strange language to you. But let me remind you, as passionately as I can, the gospel is not advice. It is not a suggestion. It is not a, rec- it is not a recommendation. It is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and God commands us to believe and if you say, No, God help you. That's all I can say. And I just want to also reiterate, we live in an age in the 21st century, we're in this part of the country, and in fact, in our nation, most people, even those who are the most secular and who want nothing to do with the things of faith and religion, have had access to the gospel and have rejected steadfastly. And it is a tragedy whatever else you think might be going on in our nation and our culture. The tragedy is about people who have refused to obey the gospel, the great story, the good news, the awesome announcement of what God has done in Christ to redeem the undeserving to himself and to one another. But failure to obey that? Well, I can't tell you how serious it is, so I'll let Paul do it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 is the most detailed writing in all of Paul's 13 letters to talk about condemnation. And it's horrible. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. A number of books have come out recently that say, well, hell and destruction, it's, it's just sort of this temporary thing. It's annihilation. It just, you just cease to exist. Not biblically. This term is used 75 times in our Bible, and 74 of them, without question, it means everlasting, eternal. There's one usage in Romans 16 that it might mean eternal, and probably does. We don't know. The point is, 74 out of 75 times, it means everlasting, unending destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. It's horrible. It's unspeakable. I don't want to talk about it, but we have to, because it's in the text, and so it is to ratchet up our awareness. It is... Everlasting ruination, not with finality, but with uselessness, an everlasting disintegration. It, it is where the loss of all useless, usefulness, where an image bearer is having that image removed forever and ever brings me no delight whatsoever to talk about those kinds of things. All the vestiges of the image of God are removed. It is horrible. It is hollow. How do we know that? Because the text says, away from the glory of his power. All creative majesty is gone. It's been said that hell is the place where God is not. That is incorrect. It's so much worse. And I have family and friends that will experience that. It is away from his face, is what the word is, away from the majesty of his face, his prosopon, his his countenance, but has turned his back on that former image bearer for all eternity. It is a horror. And so it amplifies and energizes our evangelism, our giving of the gospel, that God would do for all of those what he has done for us. It's the most comprehensive teaching Paul will ever do on it. Verse 10, when he comes on that day to be glorified in His saints, not by his saints, that's interesting, in his saints, more on that later, and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Ah Mark it down. there it is. Mark it down. Second Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 10. There it is. That is the one verse in your Bible right there, where the church is to be entertained. Nowhere else set your expectations accordingly. Proper perspective is kingdom consciousness. We are not showing up at church to be entertained. I hear it all the time. I like the worship set. I didn't care so much for the sermon. I mean, doxology was fine, but Lauren wasn't even playing drums on that one. What's up with that? I mean, you know, it it didn't feel good to me. I wasn't entertained. It's not the purpose of the church. The church's purpose is to make disciples of Jesus Christ until such time as he shall return. Oh, and then it'll be entertaining. We will marvel at the God King. Make no mistake. But until that time, our objective, our goal is not to be entertained. It is to serve one another because that's what our Lord Jesus Christ has us to do. We'll marvel at him among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. You believe the words, even though you had not met him, you love him, Paul says. Verse 11, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. I want you to notice this bookend. Remember how Paul starts this section? Your suffering, your persecution, and your affliction is to make you worthy. Paul says, to this end, I always pray that you'll be made worthy. He's saying, God, you do whatever it takes to make them fit for your kingdom. Because I love them so much too, and I know you love them even more, God. So is that how you pray for your children? Or is it just take away the pain, take away the inconvenience, take away the hard things, take away anything that might resist them whatsoever? No, no, no parent of the kingdom of Christ. You pray that they will be made fit. And if it hurts and if it's hard, it's worth it. You hold that crown of nobility and righteousness over their head, and you trust God to afflict them sometimes with circumstances and seasons that will make them fit for the kingdom because a proper perspective is kingdom consciousness. And that impacts our marriages, that impacts our parenting, it impacts how we do our jobs, how we live with our neighbors, even how we operate in church. We're not merely those people who are simply trying to make hard things go away. No, we step back and go, my goodness, my goodness. What is God doing here? I don't know exactly, but I know He's good. I know He's for me. I know He loves me. I know He loves me, and it's a better plan than anything I can conceive of. I'm going with it. Now that is a proper perspective. That is kingdom consciousness. Paul says, "This is what I'm praying for you." So you'll never see Paul go. Oh, by the way, I know I gave you the gospel. You became believers, and then we passed the plate, and then, and then and then and I'm so sorry this is happening to you guys. I'm so sorry. I never. Never does he, he goes, oh, my God must love you so much. You're being made into his image. Oh, wow. Almost like Paul can't believe that God's doing what these Gentile Greeks in Europe, but God is. They may make you worthy. Again, that word worthy is axios. It's where we get our word for axis or ax, that we would be balanced and even. What we say we believe is matched by how we behave. It's what kingdom fitness looks like. He may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, not by you, more on that in a moment, but that's absolutely huge, and you and Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how Paul prays for his people. So how do we Land of that. How do we apply that proper perspective to us? Proper perspective is kingdom consciousness. Let me just give us three quick principles, little uh, portable truths, arrows for your quiver that you can walk around with and see your world through these lenses. Number one goes like this The coming kingdom means relief for believers. Relief. Since that kingdom is coming literally to earth, It's important to remember that it's already come to earth, in a sense. Already, and not yet. The kingdom of God has surrounded the globe, but not with national boundaries. It it takes up residence in human hearts, particularly when they're gathered together. But make no mistake, we live and exist in hostile territory. Our world, our flesh, or sin nature, and our enemy are always seeking to widen the divide between us and our God, to, to keep us from His presence and His peace. And I know that there are seasons we all go through that feel like we're losing. And as we've already mentioned when we began our service this morning, as we prayed together, darkness and depression and discouragement are very, very real. But I can promise you, from the very words of God, relief is coming. I don't know when exactly, of course, but I know that in the meantime, God gives all sorts of blessings to remind and keep us walking around forward together to maintain that proper perspective. When I say relief is coming, I mean literally, he says it in the text, relief. The Greek term is anison. Perhaps some of you who are older might remember the old pain reliever, and the motto was anison means relief. You know why they said that? Because anison means Relief. He's come from Greek word anison literally means relief it had the idea of taking a long bow and releasing that string <sighs> that release of tension ecstatically his return means a relief and a release of all that angst all that tension all that fear all that doubt all that uncertainty so hang on hang in hang together that's why we're here, to stack hands and to lock arms and to do awkward bapticide hugs, to love one another in the midst of the discouragement and the darkness. Second point, the other side of the same coin, the coming kingdom means retribution for unbelievers. There's no smile on my face when I say this. Just very briefly, because there's not a lot of necessary clarification. All those who do not know God and who fail to obey, obey the gospel will be judged, not chastised, judged. I don't want, I don't, and we must not ever take delight in that. It's a horror. Instead, we gotta be reminded that people we do love and care for are numbered in those ranks, and so we pray for them and our enemies. God, would you do for them what you've done for me and not grow weary. When you encounter an image bearer who does not obey the gospel, perhaps pray through patiently, What would it look like if God took that image bearer and set them on a course of grace and peace? And if you need a reminder of what that might look like, just look in your mirror. Because that's what God has done with you. Third point goes like this. Pray the right stuff for the right reason. It's right here in the text, verses 11 and 12. Pray the right stuff for the right reason. Prayer, it's been said, is the verbal process of bending our will to God's, and importantly, not trying to bend God's will to ours. Prayer is a conversation. It's a dialogue with an actual person who loves us. It's drawing closer and closer to Him so that we can actually begin to think God's thoughts after Him. Proper perspective is kingdom consciousness. So what is the right stuff as we pray for ourselves and for one another? Three things that are the right stuff to pray for. It's right here in the text. I'm not making these up. It's really nice when I get to pull it right out of the Bible, and it's not my ideas, it's God's. The first thing we pray for is worthiness. So Paul says, This is what I pray for you worthiness, fitness for the kingdom. We talked about this, this axios, that we are balanced, that what we say we believe and how we behave are absolutely matched up. There are no compartments of our lives in which that's not the case. There is utter congruence and balance in every single part of our life, there can be no compartmentalization. We live as though we're from the future, from the coming kingdom, because we are, and we are being made to fit fully into that kingdom. We pray for worthiness for ourselves, for those people that we love, for those people that just get under our skin and we call them, you know, churchy way, they are extra grace required. It's okay, because someone else is calling you extra grace required. It's all right. We pray for worthiness. The second thing we pray for is fulfillment. It's right there in the passage. I pray for your worthiness. I pray for fulfillment. Joy is the outcome of fulfillment. and So all of our, our other errant attempts at happiness are really just grasping for possessions or experience that we think will fulfill us so that we can have joy. But as it turns out, here's the upside down, inside out, backwards thing. Joy is never our project. It's God's. Because God alone can fulfill, and joy is only a byproduct, a manifestation of fulfillment. Only God can produce joy in us. And we interfere with his plan and his purpose when we try to take the reins out of his hands and fulfill ourselves. Some somewhat noble activities, some very ignoble activities. Joy is God's project, not our own. And our joy is not a product of our circumstances. It's a product of our partnering and participating with God's plan, with proper perspective. So we pray for worthiness. We pray for fulfillment. Thirdly, we pray for powerful service. Remember last week we talked about 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, that God is Father and Jesus is Lord. God the Father provides rescue, and our Lord provides purpose, direction, meaning. And so Paul says, I pray for worthiness, that you would be fit for the kingdom, that you would be energized, equipped, edified, and then that you would serve, that you would do something with it. That's a model for how we actually designed this building, to bring people in, to make them kingdom fit, to make them worthy, to edify, to increase their energy and to give them powerful service to send them back out into the community. That's what we do here. That's how we pray for one another, for powerful service. It's amazing. What is Christian leadership? What is Christian ministry as a pastor? Teaching the Word. That's how we shepherd the people, as Ephesians 4. And prayer. Now, this is always convicting when I come to a passage about ministry of the Word and prayer because teaching environments are very limited, We can't do this seven days a week. We can't do it 24 hours a day. Nobody would come. I get that. But the opportunities for prayer are limitless. And so when I find myself having gone through a week when I've spent more time in sermon preparation than I have in congregational prayer, I always know how my sermon's going to go. Not so good. And so I close it, and I push back, and I take off my glasses, because I can't pray with glasses on, apparently. And I just start going, okay, okay. Bring me the faces. And there's Scott and Marion. There's Nathan. And I pray worthiness and fulfillment and powerful service. I pray Brandon and Brandy. And I, and I and I think of Eli. Just praying. Just praying. And I look up and I haven't eaten and my grass hadn't been cut. And I don't care because this is what we are to do for one another. We pray the right stuff for the right reason. What's the right reason? Here it is. Verse 12, so that Jesus will be glorified in you and me, not by you and me, in us. I need to try to be clear on this because this is a perspective maker. There's a reason we don't get immediately raptured into heaven the moment we are saved or converted. God's got some pretty amazing prep work to do. We are literally being prepared to be those people who will actively participate and demonstrate the coming of the God-King Jesus in power. You remember earlier I said that Jesus is hidden right now. Much of the world doesn't believe that he exists or is alive or is coming again. He is hidden. Do you know where he is hidden? Jeff. When he comes back, he will be glorified in his people. You and I will be the vessels of the delivery of the Shekinah glory of God into the current world. And so you are being prepared for that. You are being made fit for that. So I know that it hurts. I know that it's hard. I know that we want the pain to go away, but a proper perspective is kingdom consciousness. I am being prepared to be that person, and we are being prepared to be those people who are the exhibitors, the demonstrators of the glory of Christ. I'm not saying it doesn't hurt. We got all kinds of opposition and pain and resistance. I get it, but it's so worth it. So when I hear people, I don't need to come to church, you're going to lose in no time the worth of what we're doing and why we're doing it. He's coming back. And he will be glorified in his people, not just with or by, but in. We will not be able to imagine or believe what each of us demonstrate of the glory of our God in Christ. And so my prayer for me, for my own, for us, is that we would have proper Perspective, a wisdom that demonstrates the goodness, the glory, the grace of our God, that we would give the gospel. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the time to unpack this delicate text. And yet, you have a word for us that we would continue to grow in wisdom. And so, Father, if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know you, that thinks they do, or fails to obey the gospel, would you move irresistibly by your Spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your Son? They would believe, they would be persuaded, that they would be convinced that all of this is true. Maybe not clear, but true. Would you do for them, God, what you have done for me, what you have done for the rest of these believers? And Father, for those of us who are believers, would you... Use this time, this investment of energy, of focus into your word, illumined by your spirit, gathered as your people, to plug the holes that leak and drip of our awe and our hope as our perspective gets tarnished and dirtied. Would you wash our windshield in a sense, Father, that we would see things from your vantage point. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention one more time the Dancy family, as they're going through all kinds of seasons and cycles of grief, Would you comfort them, God? Would you give us wisdom to love and lead and guide and guard them in the coming days and weeks and months and years? May your gospel roll forth, Father. And as the early church prayed, so too can we. Maranatha. Even so, come on, Lord Jesus. But until you do, bring us more. Bring us more who will believe the gospel. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit. And in the name of Jesus, amen.